If you have your Bibles, the text for this morning is Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. There is something in human nature that loves the big stuff. Now, some of you may have heard me tell this story before, the one about the three Texans. Have you heard this one? Standing around doing what Texans do, bragging, of course. And uh, the first fella says, uh, I've got 10,000 acres. I like to call my ranch the Rockin' K. Second fella says, oh, that's, that's nothing. I've got 20,000 acres. I like to call my ranch the Flying W. Third fella on the end's real quiet. Finally, curiosity gets the best of these other two guys. They, they say to him, well, well, how about you? You, you have any land? And third fellow says, well, I, uh, <clears throat> I, have, uh, I have 200 acres. 200, <laughs> 200 acres? That's not a ranch. What do you call that? Downtown Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Let's just admit it. We tend to dismiss things that look small because there is something in human nature that loves the big stuff. At Christmas time, kids are always most excited to open not the smallest package, but the biggest package. At birthday parties, kids fight over the biggest piece of cake, not the smallest piece of cake. On vacations, people go to the ocean because it's big. Nobody goes on vacation to Turkey Creek. The news is full of stories about Facebook and Amazon and Google because they're huge, they're gigantic. Even in ministry, we like having the biggest youth group in town preaching at the megachurch, speaking at the big conference because ever since the Tower of Babel, we as human beings have loved things like blockbusters and bestsellers and words like biggest and largest and greatest and best. There is something in human nature that likes the big stuff. And when I first read our text for today, I thought, I thought that was the point that Jesus was making in this parable. Jesus was saying God's kingdom is going to be really, really big. In fact, one time I, I was actually assigned to preach a sermon on this text, and the sermon title that was given me was The Surprisingly Big Kingdom. And I thought, hey, that's, that's a good title. To Jesus' Jewish hearers, they would have loved that sermon title, The Surprisingly Big Kingdom. Oh, they desperately wanted to be part of a big kingdom because they were not part of a big kingdom. Israel, of course, was just a little bitty backwater province in the huge Roman Empire for millennia. They had been kicked around like a political football from world power to world power, Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Persia, and now, now they were under the heel of Rome's boot, occupied country roman soldiers everywhere and every time they saw a roman soldier you can be sure that they chafed they fumed inside and they thought to themselves someday someday messiah will come someday god will send a mighty warrior who will drive out our enemies unite the jewish forces we will sweep across the globe conquer all the nations israel will rule the world someday someday god's kingdom will come and it will be really really big 
And at first, at first I thought that was Jesus' point in this parable. Oh, not the, not the military part, of course. We all know the Jewish folks got that wrong, but, but they didn't get it wrong that the kingdom would be big. Jesus is saying that in our parable when he compares this mustard seed to a tree. Don't think of some little bitty scrub brush, some little bitty Joshua tree. No, Jesus is borrowing here the language of Ezekiel chapter 17, Ezekiel chapter 31, where God says that he will make of Israel a great and splendid cedar, a huge tree so large that its branches will spread out and all the birds of the air will perch in them. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel actually tells us that the birds of the air represent all the nations of the world. Jesus is saying God's about to do something as big as the world itself. And oh, to the Jewish people, that, that would have sounded something, something hard to believe, but you believe it because you read the book of Acts. At the very beginning, Acts chapter 1, you talk about a mustard seed, 12 guys in an upper room, 12 guys on the top of a mountain. But by Acts chapter 2, that little mustard seed has suddenly grown to 3,000 people. And by Acts chapter 4, 5,000 people. By Acts chapter 21, myriads and myriads of believers from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Fast forward to today. Christianity is literally the single largest religion in world history. Fully one-third of the world's population falls underneath the label of Christian. The church has spread like wildfire. It is everywhere. You can go right now, today, you can go on the other side of the planet, on the other side of the globe, you will find little villages that do not have a school, they do not have a hospital, they do not have a post office or a fire department, but they have a church. The church is more widely distributed, more widely spread than any business franchise, more than McDonald's and Starbucks and Walmart combined. It is literally the largest single force for good in the world. And for, for centuries, skeptics have scoffed at it, people have persecuted it, hostile leaders have tried to destroy it, but God's church has marched on. Oh, Jesus was right. That little bitty mustard seed of 12 guys grew into a tree so large its branches literally go across every time zone on the planet and that that seems like really good news and at first when I when I read this text I thought I thought that was the point that Jesus was making God's kingdom is going to be really really big but the more I read this text the more I became convinced that that wasn't the point the more I studied this text, the more I became convinced that Jesus wasn't accenting the big. The more I read it, I came to believe that Jesus was accenting the small. Jesus wasn't pointing at the great big tree and saying, wow, look at that. He was pointing at the tiny little mustard seed and saying, wow, look at that. Because you see, when Jesus told parables, um, he was always trying to turn people's thinking upside down people had all these ideas about who God is and how God runs his operation and pretty much all their ideas were wrong and so when Jesus would tell parables he was trying to give them the right ideas about the kingdom of God but he knew that these ideas would shock them would turn their expectations inside out and so Jesus would tell stories oh very sneaky very subversive I mean, they're not even religious sounding stories. They're just plain old ordinary stories about farmers and merchants and sheep and coins and meals. 
And, and, and people would, would, would relax their defenses and they would think, oh, they'd, they'd sit back, they, oh, a story. Everybody loves a story. I love telling stories. I'd like to tell you a, a story about telling stories to my kids. Now nah, I'm not actually going to do that. But you got excited for just a moment, didn't you? Yes, you did. All right. Because everybody loves stories. And Jesus would tell these stories and they would slip past people's defenses and they would smuggle in this theological dynamite that would, that would lodge in their imagination. And at just the right moment when they were least expecting it, suddenly, boom, this truth would explode. And all of a sudden, these people would be like, wait. Jesus, are you, are you, you have got to be kidding me. You're not actually saying that, oh my word, I had no, I never imagined. In fact, it's, it's Mark Scott who says that parables actually function like jokes because they have this, this little twist at the end, this little punchline, this little surprise that you don't see coming. I heard the story one time about a, a hiker in the woods and suddenly a bear came crashing out of the underbrush and began chasing this hiker. The hiker started running as fast as he could, knew there was no way he was gonna outrun this bear. And so he did the only thing that he could think of. He dropped to his knees right there in the middle of the, of the trail and he prayed, he cried out a prayer to God. First thing that came to his mind, he prayed, Lord, please let this be a Christian bear. Wasn't a very good prayer, but it was a prayer. And all of a sudden he realized, sure enough, the, the growling behind him had stopped. The crashing had ceased and he turned around to look and yeah, there was that bear right there in the middle of the trail on its knees, paws folded, praying. And he heard that bear pray. Father, we thank you for this food we are about to receive. <laughs> Surprise! That's the way jokes work, and that's the way parables work. There's a surprise, a twist that you don't see coming. You see, Jesus hearers, Jesus hearers, they think that in God's kingdom that uh, God likes best people like the Pharisees who fast twice a week and tithe of their income. But Jesus says, no, actually, in the kingdom of God, it's uh, tax collectors who beat their chest and say that they're a sinner. Those are the folks that God likes best. Surprise. They think that in God's kingdom, God turns his back on those who turn their back on him. But Jesus says, well, no, actually, when a prodigal son comes home smelling like pigs, God runs out to him and gives him a great big hug. Surprise. You talk about a shock. When Jesus tells these parables, I mean, he is, he is blowing their minds. He is turning their world upside down. There are shattered misconceptions everywhere. And that's why, as I, as I read this text, I don't think Jesus is actually emphasizing that God's kingdom is really, really big. That wasn't surprising. That was exactly what Israel was expecting. Duh. No. The real shock for the Jewish hearers would have been this, that God's kingdom is going to come in very small ways. That's what they weren't expecting. Now, Jesus couldn't have picked anything smaller to talk about than a mustard seed. A mustard seed measures 0 0.075 inches in diameter, less than a tenth of an inch in diameter. It literally takes a thousand mustard seeds to fill a thimble. They are incredibly tiny. And what Jesus is saying is this, God's kingdom comes in smallness. Can I show you something in the context? I don't know if you have your Bible open there in Luke chapter 13, the story right before our passage um, Jesus is in the synagogue, it's Sabbath, 
and into the back walks a little old lady, crippled, bent over. Now you understand, of course, that as a woman, especially as a crippled woman, she would have been second-class citizen, outcast, ostracized. You could not have picked a smaller person in that culture than her. To the synagogue leaders, she was nothing, nobody. But Jesus sees her, and he walks up to her, and he touches her, and he heals her. And when the Jewish leaders begin to protest, it is then that Jesus tells the parable of the mustard seed. The reason he tells this parable is to tell those guys, you've got it all wrong. You think that God's kingdom is going to come in in big and dramatic ways, that the Messiah will come back as a mighty warrior crashing through the clouds, kicking over Pharaohs and Caesars and kings on his way. But Messiah doesn't come in as some great, big, muscle-bound, gladiator, large, and in charge. No, Messiah, Messiah comes in as a little red-faced, wrinkled baby that smells like burped milk and dirty diapers. Messiah comes in as a little, small-town carpenter, the kind of blue-collar guy that quietly slips into the back of the synagogue unnoticed and helps little old crippled ladies. And what he is saying is this, God's kingdom comes not in big and dramatic ways, but in small, quiet, unnoticed ways, like a mustard seed being planted in the ground. Surprise. And if Jesus were titling this sermon today, he would not title it the surprisingly big kingdom. He would title it the surprisingly small kingdom. And if Jesus were preaching this message today, I think, I think he would say at least these three things to you. I think he would say that God's kingdom comes in surprisingly small places. Surprisingly small places like Bethlehem. Jesus was not born in Rome. Jesus was not born even in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem, a tiny little village surrounded by sheep pastures. I I heard a guy one time say that his hometown was so small that both city limit signs were on the same post. And that's Bethlehem, Nowheresville. And yet Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are the smallest among the clans of Judah, yet out of you will come a ruler for Israel. The kingdom of God comes in surprisingly small places like Joplin, Missouri. Now, you came to study here in Joplin, Missouri. Last month, I was in Los Angeles, California. You know that on the coasts, they call us here in the Midwest flyover country because there's no real reason to touch down in this section of the country. Nothing really important or significant happens here. When my, when my son Luke was um, just a, a little boy, he was fascinated with airplanes. And when he was about seven years old, he developed this fascination with Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh's uh, birthday was February 4th. My son Luke's birthday was February 4th. Now you remember Lindbergh, first solo flight over the Atlantic in his airplane, the Spirit of St. Louis. And Luke came up to me, seven years old one day, and he said, Dad, he said, Dad, someday I think I, think I want to build my own airplane too. And he said, I, I think I will call it the Spirit of Missouri. And then he said, I thought about calling it the Spirit of Joplin, but, well, you know. <laughs> and you do know. <laughs> Joplin is not exactly synonymous with glamour and adventure and great deeds. We're just a small city. And Ozark Christian College is just a small college. There are 14 million college students in America. We have about 600 of them. 
We are not a big college. And yet, could I do some math with you for a moment? Over 75 years, 15,000 plus alumni. What if each one of those alumni were to touch in the course of their lifetime 1,000 people for Jesus Christ. I think that's a conservative number. I know so many of our graduates who have touched thousands and thousands, ten thousands, some even millions. Kyle Eidelman writes a book, Millions Read It. Joe Garman's prison ministry has given out millions of Bibles. I'm going to say 1,000 people over the course of 50 or 60 years. That's a good number. 15,000 alumni times 1,000 lives each touched for Jesus Christ. You've done the math. That's 15 million lives changed because of this little bitty campus. When you see your friends going to those large state universities, world-class facilities, nationally known athletic teams, they can look like great, big, huge 20,000-acre ranches. But these 200 acres right here, listen to me, this is downtown Dallas. Something big is happening here. God's kingdom comes in surprisingly small places. And the second thing Jesus would say is that God's kingdom comes through surprisingly small people. People like Joseph and Mary. God did not entrust Jesus to Caesar Augustus. He didn't entrust Jesus to the family of the high priest. He entrusted the Messiah to Joseph and Mary. Who in the world are they? Mary, just some small town teenage girl, what, 15 years old? She's not listed in any who's who registry. She was never voted most likely to succeed in her high school. And Joseph, well, at least Mary gets a a speaking part in the Christmas play, read through the Gospels. Joseph literally never says one word, not one. He is a quiet, simple carpenter. His whole job is to go out on a cold morning, warm up the donkey for Mary. (laughs) It's to make sure that the suitcase is packed for when the trip to Bethlehem happens, when they get back to Nazareth. What's his job? It's just to be a carpenter, make sure you're putting food on the table so the Son of God doesn't starve to death while he's growing up. I mean, he's just an ordinary, everyday Joe. Literally, he's that guy. And when Jesus grows up, and when Jesus begins to choose his disciples, his 12 world changers, who does he pick? Extremely average people. I don't know if you remember uh, several years ago, uh, there was a movie that came out, a Disney movie called Sky High. Any of you remember uh, this movie? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And if you remember this, if you saw this, the whole story is about this high school for uh, teenage superheroes in training. They come to this school to learn how to use their budding superpowers. The teachers at the school, of course, are all superheroes themselves, trying to shape these teenagers into world savers. And as I got to thinking about this movie, it actually made me uh, ask this question. Can I, can I push pause on, on the movie for just a moment? Um, what if our faculty here at Ozark were superheroes? What superpowers would they have? I thought about this. I have some answers. You see if you agree. All right. Uh, first one here, Terry Bolin. Terry Bolin. What would his superpower be? Super strength, of course. Not hard. All right. Very good. Doug Aldrich. Doug Aldrich. Superpower? Magic lasso. I am right. Yes, I am. Okay. Cosmic Cowboy right there. All right, next one up. 
Jessica Sherman, superpower, I think she has super genius IQ. In fact, I think she already has that one, I'm pretty sure. All right, next one up, Michael DeFazio. Now, wait a minute, look at those glasses. The answer is wizarding powers, okay? <laughs> yes, yes. Next up, next up, we have Randy Garris. Now, you know, you know how Aquaman can like communicate with fish, all right? I think Randy Garris can actually telepathically communicate with all of the dogs in the world. I'm right about that, okay? That would be amazing to see. All right, next one up, Mitch Piercy. Yeah, same thing, but with computers, okay? This is what I'm talking about, same deal. Next one up, next one up, Teresa Welch. Now, if you were at Falls Ark, you already know what her superpower is. She throws flames from her hands. She already does that. Right. How about this one? Chad Ragsdale. I thought about this. I believe it is hyperfast Twitter fingers. That's what it is. If there is such a thing as social media superheroes, give the man a cape, he already is one, all right? This is true. Next up, next up, Griff, Griff. This is right. If Griff has a superpower, it's invisibility. <laughs> You're welcome, Griff. I'd just like to fade into the woodwork, please, thank you. <laughs> now, to wrap this up, I think this is the last one. Yes, it is. Miss Glenda McCarty, down in the cafeteria, I believe, I don't think there's anybody on this campus that is more like Jesus than Miss Glenda. So I believe her superpower is she can actually walk on water. Yes, she can. I'm right. Very good. Now, back to sky high for just a moment. Let me press play on this movie again. Teenagers, high school superheroes in training. You remember that the tension in the movie actually begins on the first day of school as all of the freshmen walk into gym class. Coach Boomer, kind of a hard nose, begins to put all of the students through something called power placement. They have to show what their superhero, what their superpowers are, and then he begins to divide all the students into two categories, heroes or sidekicks, based on whatever their power or ability is. So you can run at supersonic speed, hero. You can turn into a great big giant rock monster, super strong, hero. You can turn into a guinea pig, sidekick. <laughs> and of course, the heroes in the school, I mean, they get all the attention, they get all the popularity, they get all the girls. And it seems like the heroes rule the day. The, the sidekicks, I mean, they get nothing. They get forgotten. They, they don't get the teacher's attention. They get left out on the fridges. Uh, fringes, they're ignored. Nobody cares about the sidekicks. But of course, it's a Disney movie. And so by the end of the story, it's the sidekicks that actually take on the bad guys. It's the sidekicks that actually save the world. And, and at the beginning of the Gospels, when Jesus is choosing his disciples, and he's choosing these, this league of world changers. He doesn't choose anybody from the heroes category. He chooses 12 sidekicks. Peter, what's your superpower? My superpower? My superpower is putting my foot in my mouth. Watch, Jesus. I can get it in up to the knee. All right. James and John, what's your superpower? We can get really mad. Smoke comes out our ears. 
They're a bunch of knuckleheads. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're rejects. Nobody wants them. But Jesus says, I choose you. And he teaches them and he trains them and he turns them loose in the world. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 17, the Jewish leader says, these men, these men have turned the world upside down. By God's grace, they're doing it. They're changing the world. And you hear me, Ozark students, you hear me right now. Some of you think you don't have much to offer. Maybe you're struggling with class right now, last week. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, they've got five talents, what do I have? I don't have the superpower of preaching like Mark Scott. I don't have the superpower of singing like Tammy Nelson. I don't even have the superpower of cool hair like Isaac Shade. I got nothing. (laughs) And you have this little internal voice in your head that is saying to you right now, what were you thinking? Coming to Bible college and preparing for ministry. God can't use you. But it was Martin Luther who said this, God made the world out of nothing and as long as you stay nothing, God can make something out of you. God wants to use you to save the world because God's kingdom comes through surprisingly small people. Last thing Jesus would say is this, God's kingdom comes in surprisingly small packages. It comes from surprisingly small packages. Sometimes we think that that God's kingdom will come because we've done something that seems grand, something that seems glorious, something that seems huge and big and significant and important, something that grabs the attention of the world. Someone gave a million-dollar gift to Ozark Christian College. Christian quarterback wins the Super Bowl, testifies about Jesus in front of billions of people watching on TV. And listen, big things can be good things I'm thankful for the Christian quarterback who gives his testimony about Christ to a watching world I'm thankful that someone gave a million dollar gift to Ozark Christian College in fact if you are watching on video you want to give a million dollar gift to Ozark Christian College we'll take it I promise we'll put it to good use but for our entire history God God has sustained this college with gifts of 10,000 and 1,000 and 100 bucks and $10 with a little note from a, a widow lady that I know in Lamar, Missouri. And God's kingdom sometimes, every once in a while, it will come in some great, big, shiny package, but most often it comes in little bitty brown paper wrapper packages. It comes when you give a cup of cold water and when you wash somebody's feet and when a little boy gives his lunch of five loaves and two fish and a widow lady drops her two pennies in the offering plate and a small town carpenter slips into the back of the synagogue and he heals a little old crippled lady and it happens when you look out for the least and the last and the lost and those are things that may not get you on TV or on a magazine cover. They won't go viral on the internet and they won't get you on the poster speaking at the next big convention. But I am telling you that when God says to shine your light, you don't have to be a halogen floodlight. God can use 25 watt people who will just light up their little corner of a dark world. That's how the kingdom comes. Last story. Um, my family and I, we, we belong to a little bit church here in Joplin, 120, 125 folks at our little congregation. And this was several summers back. Our, our little church was uh, without a youth minister. And I had, once upon a time, been the youth minister at that church. And so that summer, I, 
I told them, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll volunteer. I'll, I'll just kind of step into the youth ministry role for the course of this summer. Now, it wasn't like I didn't have anything to do. First of all, I got a big family. I think, in fact, my wife was pregnant that summer with baby number six. And I travel a lot on behalf of the college. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, I, I did uh, two straight weeks of CIY. I spoke 17 times in two weeks. I did that summer uh, three weeks of camp. I, I taught youth group. I taught children's church. I directed VBS. I rounded up youth sponsors. I, I took the kids on a mission trip. I, you know, I, I got uh, uh, two dozen eggs smashed in my hair. I got a pie in my face. I sat in the dunk tank. I did everything that youth ministers do. And it was a long summer. And at the, near the end of the summer, I was at a week of camp, first and second grade week of camp, 150 first and second graders. It was the second day of camp. I'm just being honest here. I was a little tired and I was a little grumpy. And uh, it was afternoon. All the kids were supposed to be over at the pool swimming. And so another guy, sponsor, and I are making a uh, sweep through the boys' dorm to make sure that all the kids are over where they're supposed to be. And I'm going through the bathroom and I'm knocking on all the stall doors. And I knock on one of the stall doors and from behind it, I hear this little voice, help. What in the world? <laughs> I open up the stall door. Inside this little boy named Josh. Josh is six years old. Josh looks up at me and he says, help. I don't know how to wipe my bottom. <laughs> Will you help me? Now, brothers and sisters, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to be very, very honest with you here right now. My first thought was, you just go ahead and pull them pants on up there, buddy. You know, <laughs> you'll be all right. You're going swimming. It'll be okay. <laughs> I'm not proud of that, all right? But I'm just telling you that at that moment, I did not want to wipe that kid's bottom. I mean, I, I, I've been to seminary. I, I know Greek. I'm a Bible college president, man. That's not my job. <laughs> but you know that verse on our college seal, right? Mark 10, 45. Not to be served, but to serve. So I reached over and I tore off the toilet paper. And serving Jesus is very unglorious. And when I got home that Friday night from that week of camp, I was tired. You know that the body and soul live so close to each other, they catch each other's diseases. My spirit was tired. I was, I was, I was discouraged. And to be honest, I was thinking to myself, what, what good did any of this do? I worked hard all summer long, and, uh, and I'm just going to head into another school year exhausted. Did this make any difference? The next morning, Saturday morning, I got a phone call from a little girl named Tesla. Tesla had been to the week of camp with me and she said, Mr. Matt, I want to get baptized. I want to become a Christian. I said, Tesla, that's great. Can you meet me at church this afternoon? Let's talk about it with your, with your mom and dad. She came from an unchurched family. But her parents brought her to church, and that afternoon I got to just share the gospel with Tesla. Of course, her, her parents were overhearing this. And the next morning, Sunday morning, I got to baptize Tesla. Her mom and her dad came. I was glad for that, to watch her baptism. And the next Sunday they brought her back. I figured they'd just drop her off, but Tesla's mom came in to the church service. And the next Sunday she came to the church service. And the next Sunday... And the following Sunday, as soon as I walked in the door at our church, Karen... The mom began to make a beeline towards me across the lobby. And as she was coming straight towards me, I happened to notice that she had in her hand a Bible, one of those free take one if you need one Bibles that we had in our lobby. And when she got up to me, the first words that she said were, I've been reading this and I'm ready. 
And the next Sunday, I got to baptize Karen. And listen to me, students, there will be a lot of times in ministry that are very unglorious. They are tedious and they are messy and they will not seem very important at all. And you will be tempted to think, is any of this making any difference at all? I mean, I'm not doing anything very big here. I'm not preaching to 20,000 people. I'm not on the other side of the globe kicking over brothel doors trying to rescue people from human trafficking. Were you in chapel last week? There's some of my spiritual heroes. But my fear is that some of you might have walked out thinking, that's great, but that's not me. I'm not a missionary on the other side of the globe getting attacked by terrorists for living out my faith. I'm just a guy at church camp trying to help some kid in the bathroom. And when you are tempted to bail out, you remember Galatians chapter six, verse nine. Let us not grow weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So you keep doing the small stuff. You keep teaching that kid's class. You keep planning that youth group trip. You keep copying off those chord charts. You keep preparing communion. You keep cutting the grass at church. You keep volunteering at VBS. You keep visiting that, that widow lady. You keep being that guy's accountability partner. You keep listening to that troubled soul. You keep giving that annoying coworker a ride to your job at the restaurant. You, you keep loving people and serving people and obeying Jesus. You keep going to camp and tearing off the toilet paper because listen, this is crazy, but it's true. At some moment when you least expect it, you will do something that you think is nothing, but God's kingdom will break through. There is something in, in human nature that loves the big stuff, but there's something in God's nature that loves the small stuff. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And I know all that is true because this very same God chose to be born in a manger and walk among peasants and die on a forgotten hill and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And when they buried him, Jesus' enemies, those Jewish leaders, they dusted their hands off and they said, well, that's that, it's over. He's done and this little bitty movement will now die out. But what they didn't realize when they buried his body was that they buried him like a mustard seed in the ground. And that mustard seed lay there dead Friday night and it lay there dead Saturday morning and it lay there dead Saturday night. But on that Sunday morning, that mustard seed sprang forth to life and it grew bigger than they ever could have imagined the body of Christ big as the world. All from one tiny little tomb. So Ozark Christian College students, you go finish reading your little reading assignments and you go finish writing your little papers and you go finish taking your little tests and you pack your little suitcase and you get your little car and you drive home next week and you have a merry little Christmas but you keep your eyes open 
because, surprise, little is where it all begins. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would take our lives. We know that we are little, but like five loaves and two fish, we pray that you would take the little there is of us and that you would multiply it far beyond our wildest imagination more than we could ever ask or imagine. Multiply it, we pray, for your glory and for the world's good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.